Hello, this is part two of the interview I did with Queensland Green activists Mel, Eva and Declan, who've all been involved in the types of community campaigning in Brisbane that resulted in the unprecedented victory of, of three Greens candidates in lower house seats in last year's federal elections. Uh, and this interview was actually recorded a few months ago and part one came out in June, but uh, unfortunately there's a lot of audio issues and everyone involved is very busy and doing this in our free time. So apologies, it's taken so long to get part two out. Uh, and I think if you haven't heard part one, it's also on the Floodcast podcast. So I recommend going back, having a listen to it if you haven't yet. In this part, we talk in more depth about the different types of campaigning that they do and how they do it. Uh, it can feel like there aren't many victories for our side in politics. So I'm all for hearing from those who've won things when no one actually said they could. Speaking of which, the next interviews after this will be with the Greens MP and housing spokesperson Max Chandler-Mather and Brisbane Greens activist Liam Flenerty. Uh, reflecting on the Greens housing campaign that they've run, a uh, very high profile campaign and some other issues as well. But for now, let's hear more from Mel, Eva and Declan. Well, I wanted to look on from that. Like, this is again something that's that's come up a, a fair bit. The question of relating to people's materials over sort of moral politics, um, and I think that type of thing, universalism, will yeah, you know, often pretty much everyone on the left talks about it to some extent, um, but very few probably uh, genuinely genuinely practice it but I'm wondering and I kind of asked this in the last episode with Liam and and Mac but I'd be interested in your thoughts how then does this relate to the question of um well the first yeah, the first part of it would be to I guess what you might call what things will require moral or solidarity or you know support from from others such as you know if you're not first nations um, supporting First Nation rights, supporting refugees, um, trans rights, things like like that. How do you see the re the way you can talk to people about um, about those issues when it doesn't immediately materially affect them? And the second part of this question, which is a lot, which is more complex, and I don't think there is, and you, you probably got well. If you have a if you have a great answer, I'll, I'll be very happy. Um, but it is a more complicated question, which is not simply when there are things that are maybe not immediately in your interest, but amongst the population, even though we can sort of establish sort of universalism, which sees, you know, most people in the way that you've described actually have relatives, enough common interests that they can, you can actually talk to them as a block against basically the power that exists uh, as something that's hostile to their lives. However, amongst those people, there are often um, actual, not just different material interests, but material interests that can, that can clash. And an obvious thing I can think of would be, you know, like a, a working class person who owns their home is probably going to have a different attitude to interest rate rises and, you know, working class people stuck in permanent rentals, for example. I'm wondering how you um, deal with those those issues and to what extent I guess it even it even comes up. I think I think it's something that that comes up a reasonable amount, to be honest. Like you'll talk to you know you'll talk to people and you'll say like. You know, if you're not really getting anywhere, you might say, like, play some of the hits and be like, well, what about dental into Medicare? What about universal housing? Um, things that, that often kind of land quite well. And they'll be like, well, I've got private health insurance. I've got this. I've got that. Um, and kind of find a way of saying that, like, well, look, th that doesn't actually affect my material interests. I think this 
I think the thing with interests is that we've all got a whole range of possible interests that exist. So, like, there's a bunch of, like, there's a bunch of material interests that we have that kind of existed at, like, a temporal or spatial scale far outside what we're used to really being able to think about our interests in. So, you know, when when you talk about, like, Indigenous rights in Australia, for example, like, like, I think it's true that people have got a a bunch of different sets of interests in how they relate to that. Like, in, in one sense, people have this, like, strong material interest in denying Indigenous rights because their own property and the and the economy that they're situated in and and all that is is kind of opposed to to an idea of indigenous sovereignty over those over over their property over their land and over the the economy that the, and the resources that they they use but constructed at a at a broader time scale or at a, a broader kind of spatial kind of thing well that well that they've got these interests as as like you know the the kind of the potential utopian communist that could exist where it's as well we still would could you could have a set of interests which um that ally that ally with these people um in an ability to kind of create a world where you don't actually have to to spend most of your life doing a job that you don't find very interesting and you give up the best you know the best eight hours of every day and the best five days of every week for the best years of your life in fucking drudgery um for a share of those resources so it's about I think it's about expanding the like when we're talking about conflicting interests. I think where they conflict is on on kind of temporal or spatial scales. And so what you're trying to do is to expand, like expand the kind of scale that people can conceive of their interests on. Um, I, I, at least that's how I think about this kind of contest between interests and contrast between material interests. And and I guess like how to get away how to get away from framing some of these things in purely moral terms. Like, I think it's really easy to look at these really big things and say, well, it's actually only a moral argument, but like conceived of, conceived at various types of scales, like people do have material interests in moral claims. Like, you know, you do have material interest in, in getting rid of like the, the structures of prejudice that structure our society because our capacity to build a solidar- solidaristic relations and actually undo the class system that, that controls all of our lives is dependent on, on getting rid of these prejudicial things. But you do also, like people do straight up have a material interest in maintaining those prejudicial relationships as well because they get the psychological payoff of not being at the bottom of the fucking ladder and they also get the the material payoff of having, you know, like, you know, like whether whether it's like the the wages of whiteness or access to access to stolen land and the resources on those on that stolen land. So I think it's it's that's kind of the framing that I like. Mm, me, um, oh, sorry, Gemma. Ah, uh, thanks, Eva. I think um, maybe to speak like to the last point you made of like renters versus homeowners, um, and I think it's also what Declan was alluding to is like there's actually always a bigger enemy. There's there's always a much bigger enemy who holds a much bigger share of power that you can always refocus your conversation to. Um, and, I mean, yeah, the example of, like, renters and homeowners and either and even renters and landlords, like landlords who are only a landlord of one property, um, the bigger enemy there is the banks. The, the person, the people who are profiting are, are the big four banks. Um, and you can reframe those conversations to be like, like, I'm not, not talk like you're suffering from interest rate rises too. Renters are suffering suffering from it too, and the only winner are the banks in this scenario. Um, and so I think it's not getting too bogged down in the details because 
it's that yeah it's that collective response and solidarity there is a bigger enemy there are bigger fish to fry and let's let's focus on them together um because that's how we will um you know improve our lives and i think we've had really good success recently like specifically talking about housing of like tr- trying to build a sense of solidarity between people who are homeowners even if they own their home outright people who are mortgage holders and people who are renters those are that's the same group of people and even though you know renters might feel like it's their landlord who's the problem mortgage holders feel like it's banks that are the problem it is the same material interest at the end of the day um and even like yeah small smaller landlords will come on board with that because they equally are being punished by the banks yeah just to add something i think it's a slightly different um i guess angle on the question but um you know i suppose you know if i was chatting to somebody who um you know might be a little bit more you know comfortable middle class um maybe you know they have their own um you know private health or whatever and and you know my dental and medicare pitch um might not be necessarily speaking to their material interests you know um so directly or or maybe some of our other policies are not um i guess um hitting like a, a need that that person is really you know thinking about or, or um uh not necessarily um at the forefront of their mind but you know say for example you know um issues such as refugee rights um or transphobia or these things um you know might be on on their minds as issues and um i guess my sort of taken perspective on that would be that um a lot of these things that i guess framed as um you know um, First Nations issues or um, issues affecting um, particularly marginalised groups, um, you know, I think it's important to frame that those are still mostly material issues as well um, and um, that there are these groups in society that are um, at the intersection of, you know, um, you know, poverty, you know, race, class, all these things. Um, and it's this idea that, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats, I suppose. And that's where that universal universalism comes in is that, um, you know, maybe the, perhaps the person I'm speaking to, you know, free childcare, um, you know, may not make a huge difference to them in their day-to-day life. It might make a small difference, but, um, you know, for some communities for whom um, that, um, you know, um, material need is far more at the forefront and far more, dire you know that that benefits that them as well and I suppose in that case that person might not be voting you know directly with their own material interests um in mind or they may not think they are even though they are um but this idea that um you know there there are basic things that we all need and um you know as a society we should be making sure that everyone is okay um that might be in, in a way, a bit more of a moral argument than a material argument for some people, um, but that it's still material at the end of the day. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of my spin on that, I suppose. I might jump, this is feeling like jumping a bit from the very broad to the very specific, um, but I'm actually just interested, I mean, I guess for people who haven't done door knocking, I, I'm actually interested in the very practicalities of of what happens, including, I mean, like, what do you say when someone opens the door and generally how do those discussions, what do you open with, um, you know, uh, and generally how do you find the discussions go? Like to what percentage of people don't want to talk to you at all? Um, yeah, be interested in, in that. Yeah, so to start with, we just do a general, like, 
Hey, my name is Mel. I'm a volunteer for the Greens. Insert candidate just here to chat today. Um, and I think it's really important that you identify that you are from the Greens first or alongside the candidate because there's just this these building layers of trust that gets built, you know, partially with the candidate but also a lot with the Greens to the point where we'll go back to areas that we've door-knocked a lot, you'll knock on their door and they'll know you're from the Greens before you even say anything. I've had conversations in West End where it's like, yes, yes, I vote for you. Yes, you can put a yard sign up. Yes, put it there, not on that side of the lawn. Goodbye, close the door. Um, and so I think this like introducing the Greens immediately is really important as building trust with the institution rather than building trust with the individual volunteer that's there or the, the individual candidate. Um, so that's kind of like, yeah, something that I always keep front of mind. Um, and I guess most of the conversations, God, what's our first question? It's like, how's your day going? Oh, how do you feel? How do you feel about politics at the moment is kind of our key golden question. And most people are just like, I don't know. Like most people, you know, we've talked about that disconnect from politics a lot. Um, and that, that isolation from politics. So most people are just kind of like, a bit disengaged from it and you it's kind of your job to fill in the blanks of why they are disengaged from politics um and just keep asking questions and I think at the start especially in areas that we haven't door knocked before people are a bit curious about what what are you doing like what is this interaction going to be they haven't had this experience of someone coming to their door before maybe the experience they've had of someone coming to their door is a religious person or someone trying to sell something and so this and like you know the, the religious person coming to the door is also try, someone trying to sell something um sell an idea to them so I think it's very novel for people to have someone come to their door and be like well what do you think we should do about what's going on like well, what tell me what you think um and it's really quite enjoyable to watch people go from being a bit like oh what what do they want what are they trying to sell me and then lean into the conversation um and I think like you'll hear a lot of us talk about all these really great wonderful interactions we had on the door and I think it's like but for as many awesome, deep, really meaningful conversations we have, there's dozens that are not that. There's dozens that are just like people just don't want to chat um, and that's okay. Um, it's just the like, just the keeping on going to find someone who do does want to have that um, that conversation. Yeah. I br very briefly forgot what our Donald script is at the start. I was like, it's been a hot minute. <laughs> I've actually just looked it up. Um, and it's yeah, a bit of a, a bit of a blast from the past. This campaign was um, almost a year ago now. Um, but yeah, I think I think um, Mel pretty much covered it. I mean, in terms of like really getting down to the nitty gritty, you know, there's um, a bit of a structure to it, and that um, depending on um, which campaign it is, um, you know, the actual content or the phrasing of the particular questions that we ask um, will change. But the um, the general structure is very basic. It's pretty much a connect at the beginning and that's your introduction and explaining why you're there. Um, then there's a section on exploration um, and that's really um, focused on open questions rather than closed questions. Um, we don't want to give people the, too many chances to say um, yes or no because that can sort of close things off a bit. 
preemptively when really one of the main challenges is trying to get people talking and engaging. Um, and so, you know, the questions that fall into that um, change campaign to campaign and either, even within campaigns. Um, sorry, I've got a lawnmower outside. Um, but they include things like, yeah, um, how do you feel about politics in general at the moment? Um, the one that I, um, on this particular um, example I'm looking at is um, what matters to you at the moment or what issues do you think are important? And I really like that one um, because it, it doesn't actually say, are there any issues that are important to you? It actually assumes that there are things that matter to this person because <laughs> they're a human being. Um, and, you know, of course, of course there is um, an issue that matters to them. It's just the challenges teasing out from that person um, a response in the context of a conversation about politics because they may not think that their answer to that question is the right answer because they don't see it as political. Um, and that's where sort of um, building trust and, um, you know, making sure people know that um, we're here to hear them out about whatever it is and it doesn't have to fall under the category of so-called um, political issues or things that are being discussed in the media as political. It could actually be something, um, you know, a lot more material perhaps. Um, so that, that falls under the explore section, um, which also includes, um, you know, our version of the voter ID question, which is, have you ever considered voting for the Greens? Um, which I think is also a really interesting question to tease out um, potential objections. Um, so I suppose that one is a, is a yes or no, but um, even if you get a no, that's often not the end. <laughs> so um, that's often... Um, actually quite exciting for experienced door knockers to hear a no because then you get to ask why and then that's when the objections come out and sometimes <clears throat> those objections are, are really really easy to overcome and we arm all our door knockers with training on how to respond to the most common objections to um you know no I haven't thought about voting greens this is why or you know yes I have thought about it but um, I didn't because of X, Y, Z, that people even answer that question at all. I think there's definitely like an underlying fear about asking people about their voting intention or what they've thought about voting because it's seen as, I guess, um, a little bit impolite or taboo or whatever. Um, but this surprised me too when I started door knocking is that most people will tell you um, if, if you frame it in that way, um, or have you ever considered it? Um, and it just, it's really, really useful. Um then in terms of just wrapping up the actual um, structure of, of the conversation, I suppose the next bit would be, um, you know, keep the conversation going. So, you know, if things are slowing down a little bit or you're not getting much from them at this point, there's a few more questions you can ask. Um, and then you would end with basically um, a pitch followed by a close. So, you know, the pitch would be, you know, say this person's, um, you know, giving you, given you a few minutes of their time, but you can see it's that moment, um, you can see the door is slowly being shut in front of you while they're sort of still poking their head around the side. Um, and you know, you've only got a few seconds, um, you know, at least trying to, um, you know, very quickly make the case as to why this campaign is important, you know, what we're standing for, um, and the fact that we might have a chance to win, which is obviously only specific for some campaigns. Um, and, just knowing that, you know, even if it may not seem that that person is engaging with you in the final pitch, you know, at least they've heard it directly from another person. And we know that 
when that message is delivered by, you know, a, you know, a neighbor, a volunteer, someone, um, a real person, it's probably going to make more of an impression than any flyer or any billboard or any TV ad that they see. Um, and so just having the confidence, I suppose, in the project and in the campaign to, to make that sort of final final pitch before you go. Um, and then it wraps up and you tell them to have a lovely day. <laughs> Got a bit nitty gritty there. I hope that was interesting to someone. <laughs> um, I think what you said, Stuart, about like, you know, what percentage of people actually talk to you is something that really shocks new volunteers. Um, the really important part, oh, not the really important part, but one of the really important parts where people get a sense of collectivity um, from a door knock is the debrief afterwards. And if there's new volunteers, I'll always ask like, you know, what, like how was it like did it like what sort of expectations were either confirmed or kind of blown apart by by the experience of door knocking and new volunteers will always be like well how many people just spoke to us like I'm I'm stunned like how like I thought it would be so like like you know getting blood from a stone to get people to talk to me but but like it felt like everyone wanted to talk to me and I think part of that is just like a selective memory is like it's you don't really remember someone just like opening the door and being like oh I'm not interested in closing the door because there's not much to like hang a memory onto there as opposed to a, a real conversation. But I also think that that sort of thing doesn't happen the majority of the time by any means, uh, like two or three out of 10 might be like that. Um, it, it also depends on, on like how you go about it. Some people are, some people are better at talking to like, you know, like I think for like, I, you know, I, I'm a big beardy man. And I think like young women in particular, probably are a little bit less like, interested in like opening up the door straight away and having a big chat with me than than like you know a, a guy who's just not going to feel like any like degree of physical threat <laughs> like threat from me for example um so like there's like who you're talking to kind of goes about it but I think like particularly with the start of the conversation I at least try to be very um try and build rapport really quickly early on so like if I, I can hear them coming to the door or I can see them coming down the hallway or something like that, I'll start just like chatting about like, you know, the, their pop plants or their dog or whatever it is um, as I'm explaining who I am and like what I'm there to do. So I think that sort of stuff's all really important for actually getting someone in. Um, but in general, like I think, yeah, it's people are generally quite surprised by how willing people are to talk to them. Um, I think that's, one of the really strong impressions that new volunteers always give is that they're surprised by how easy it was to walk up to a stranger's door and talk. And like the only, what's difficult about it is, is like what's difficult in your own psychology to go and like go onto someone's like, you know, hallowed kind of private property and, and break that, like break that anonymity that we, that we kind of depend on in some ways in the city rather than um, the actual process of, of saying hello and, and, and what's going on with someone. I think a thing I really like about door knocking, and this is a conversation I've had with Eva before, is that you as the person door knocking is the only one with the social script. And like, unless you're door knocking in an area that's been well door knocked before, um, which isn't many places, like you're the one with the social script and the social script doesn't exist for the person who's being door knocked. There, there's nothing for you to go off for experience there's no like formalized way of this is the way the conversation must go so even myself in like regular social situations where I'd really struggle talking to a stranger in a door knock I'm like I've got this excellent script I know what I'm here for this is 
easy, easy breezy. And the person I'm talking to is following my lead because they don't know what this social interaction is. Only I know what it is and I'm in control of it. Um, and so I think for folks who are a bit, um, you know, a bit more introverted or typically a bit more shy or maybe struggle talking to strangers like at a party, um, this is like a really easy way to do it. And it's really lovely. And it was really nice to come to that realization as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Mel. And I think, I think, um, I think it was in that conversation that we had that I reflected on the fact that, um, you know, despite being, um, you know, a bit of a shy and maybe sometimes a bit socially awkward person myself, um, doorknock conversations actually very, very rarely feel awkward. Um, I mean, you can feel, um, you know, nervous before your first, you know, door or whatever. Like I, I still sometimes feel nervous before knocking on my first door. Um, and they can be, you know, maybe sometimes a little bit unsuccessful or a little bit stilted, um, but not necessarily awkward. And I think my my theory on that is that awkwardness comes from when social scripts go awry. And because there is no actual social script for what it means to have a um you know, deep political conversation with um, a political party volunteer at your door. Um, people don't don't know, um, yeah, exactly what that script is. Um, and so, I, I feel like that's <laughs> that's maybe one of the um, yeah one of the benefits of it, or, or why I personally haven't found conversations to be awkward, even when they um, are not successful. Um, that's yeah, not not a feeling that I think necessarily corresponds to it but that's a bit of a theory other people might they might disagree and feel like it's awkward all the time but um yeah <laughs> um, i'm actually interested in how widespread because there's a certain i guess out there you know or you know there are certain stereotypes anybody who you know maybe hasn't had much to do with the greens um you know could come up with they come up with a list of of cliche stereotypes what they expect the greens to be you know like latte sipping tree hugging virtue signalers who um or you know like consume too much murdoch media and think you're all wide-eyed communists um who want to i don't know socialize their babies or something like um <clears throat> um i see Declan go well maybe uh, <laughs> uh but I, I wonder how widespread that's those type of things are out there um is it because people might assume they are reasonably widespread but is it something that you come across much? I think it's something you you do come across, but it's it's probably weaker than the than the comment section kind of like character that you're imagining. Like I think a lot of people will have absorbed that, but to a much lesser degree than someone who's like who's who's you know in the comment section of the Herald Sun being like you know these are the kind of like white eyed communists or whatever it is. So people might have that a little bit, but it's just it's not front of mind for them. It's relatively easy to get past it just by like by physically being there, um, like and and from putting the boot into the greens from time to time or or, or into politics in general. Like I think um, like often often really early on in the conversation when people are closing the door, like I'll. I'll be like, oh yeah, well, because I think politics is fucked or something like that, or like you know, or I think the Greens, you know, often the Greens or historically the one a line I'll use a lot is sorry, um, a line I'll use a lot is like historically the Greens have have um tried to appeal to people on like moral grounds and they've they'll look down their noses at people who don't like have the same sort of like positions as them on on refugees or anything like that, and they you know, they've tried to guilt people into voting for the Greens, but I think that's bullshit. And I think fundamentally people have got the same interests and what we're trying to do is, is do this, do that, do that. Um, sorts, sort, sorts of things that we've been talking about over the last hour or so. 
Um, and I think being able to do those sorts of things relatively early on into a conversation, like you, you can blow apart any of those kind of weak assumptions relatively easily. Um, and if someone has has those sorts of like impressions that are strongly, strongly formed, it's almost impossible to get through them in a single conversation anyway. Sometimes you can. Um, it's not it's not not doable, but but generally speaking, it's gonna take, you know, probably a couple of years of door knocking before that person um has has a really earnest conversation with someone. And that's fine as well. Like you, you can't go into it being like, look, if someone's absorbed like a degree of like if someone has like such a strongly built up sense of meaning about what the greens are and who they are, it's going to take more than 10 minutes to overcome that. That's all there is to it. Um so you just kind of have to accept that if someone's just like obviously got this really strong sense of you as like a, a tree hugging communist who wants to, you know, abolish their family or whatever it is. That's that's fine. You can't really deal with it. Yeah, and we would encourage volunteers to like not necessarily, you know, waste all of their time on somebody who really just isn't persuadable at the end of the day, or as Declan says, you know, might not be persuadable in that particular conversation, but we can, you know, um, chip away <laughs> at changing their mind over the course of a few campaigns. Um, and I think that is something that is a really important learning moment for volunteers um, is that, you know, even though you might have every now and again that um, you know, interaction that does remind you of a comment section, <laughs> whatever, um, that, you know, most most people um, don't necessarily have these, um, you know, um, preconceptions or if they do, they're not holding them super closely um, and can be quite easily dismissed. And that is something um, that I think makes volunteers feel a lot better about the general public <laughs> as a whole. Um, and that is, like, that is a... A moment of polit political education for a lot of us is that oh well like, you know most people are you know pretty open to at least hearing what we have to say yeah well i think you've given a very good overview really of the way that this tactic of door knocking turns people outwards and you know towards ordinary people because i mean anyone who spent any time on the the radical you know, radical politics or um you know politics that go against the grain no it's incredibly easy to get very insular often without even realizing it um, in your points of reference, your language, a whole, a whole lot of things. Um, and I see it even, I don't, well, I think I will say this because um, I live in New South Wales. I'm not asking for comments um, from you on the New South Wales Greens, but there are certain things New South Wales Greens do that personally annoy me a lot. And I know they do a lot more than what I'm about to say, but like um, a lot of the memes that they put out, for example, like um, it's the one recently, which was, yeah, it's one of those TV shows. I don't even know the TV show, so I'm already feeling like it's kind of cliquey and um, inward-looking. And it was like you know, a guy saying to a woman, can you come over tonight? She's saying, why? And then his answer, which is you know, when you write the text over the meme or something like, so we can um, build mutual aid to challenge capitalist institutions. Um, and so this is like a mainstream party. I mean, who are you trying to reach um you know i mean I, where i live in western sydney where i'd love the i want the greens to do a hell of a lot more work and it's like well how what does that even mean to anyone seeing that anyway i don't want to go down that path but that's like a, that's very easy and i've done it too like facebook memories seem to exist to me to torture me to remind me of how much of a moralizing dickhead um you know i that i frequently have been um so, so I'm going to like qualify the comment by I think it's very easy to fall into. I've fallen into the same, it fallen into the same thing. Um, I'm wondering though um, thoughts on what you think some of the limits of door knocking are. Like what it like it obviously can't do everything, and it's not all you do. And I will get into some of the other things 
Um, but I guess I guess thoughts of how far, yeah, what, what are the limits to how far this takes you? And yeah, I think um, one we started coming up against, or we've probably always come up against it, is just people being so apathetic that they simply don't believe you and what you say, and you have very limited real world examples to point to of like a different type of politics working in Australia. So that's kind of a key one. And I think um, the community organising that we started doing in the most recent Griffith campaign started to overcome that in a lot of ways. Um, A good example is um, so someone was door knocking, chatting to this single father about universal free childcare. And he was just like, it's never going to happen. Like, it's just not happening. Didn't really want to talk. At the um, at the time, we were running a free food program um, kind of during that Omicron wave, um, just, just after the kind of peak of it, um, but a lot of people were really struggling financially and still giving out free food boxes. And at the end of the conversation, the volunteer gave the, the slip to this person and said, if you ever need a free food, food box, you need a hand just give us a call, we'll drop something around to you. He called later in the week, got a free food box, got it delivered, and he called back up to say thank you um, and that he'd been trying to get help from multiple different types of services and hadn't been able to receive any help. And within a matter of days, we'd just turned around a really simple um, service for him and was just gushing with gratitude and so thankful Um but then was like, you know, you were talking to me about free childcare and I just didn't think it was possible. But but kind of I can't remember how the conversation went because it didn't happen with me. But he was alluding to the fact that, oh, well, you've proven yourself with this. Like you showed me that, like, you know, giving me this basic help is possible. Maybe something bigger is possible as well. Um, and so I think that like and maybe as our movement grows and we're able to do more things and we can wield real parliamentary power and we can use our resources to keep running things like free food programs that limitation will be overcome in of itself in door knocking Uh, but that is a big one that we've come up against and I think yeah that that disbelief that something different is possible is a tricky one but also big limitation of people telling you shit that's going on in their lives and only being able to talk about it in the abstract of how we will theoretically be able to fix this problem instead of being able to actually help them. Um, And that can feel, it doesn't happen often, but it can feel really demoralising to be like, oh, you've just told me this, like, really rough time you're having with Centrelink or with whatever it is, and I can't, our, our movement isn't there yet to fix this for you. All, all I can do is tell you what we'd theoretically do. Um, and so that's like an, another limitation for me. Yeah. Thanks, Mel. I love that story of the um, free childcare. I think that's such a good one because um, it it goes to the heart of um, what we sometimes talk about with raising expectations. But also, I think um, kind of this idea of yeah, like show not tell, in a way. Um, and I think yeah, like the community organizing during the campaign, specifically the um, COVID aid um food boxes and flood aid which i would love to hear you talk more about that um in this episode mel if we have time um because i think it's a really good example of what door knocking can't do um you know when you're trying when you're door knocking someone and you're trying to raise that person's expectations of what's possible um 
it's just words and sometimes that it, sometimes it is enough to convince someone that it's worth you know throwing a vote to the greens or whatever but um it sort of pales in comparison to uh, I think the trust that we built through the flood um what happened with the floods like I you know I um remember door knocking before and after the floods um in those areas those suburbs that were hardest hit by it and um there, there was like a noticeable shift in the trust that um you know max and the campaign had built um in those areas through that and i think um conversations could not have got us there um so yeah i think this might actually lead into the next question carlo sorry we've done it again but um, i'd love to hear a little bit more about that from Mel as well. I think what door knocking does really, really well is it it works at the kind of like hegemonic and the kind of the the feeling of like what people believe is possible. Um, and I think it can build a lot of parliamentary power and I can think it can build a, a, a counterbalance to the media in general and kind of take the place of what a left media apparatus could do in Australia. And I think it can, it's a, it's a really important hegemonic practice, but I think fundamentally, even with the community organising, I think fundamentally what it can't do is is build worker power in the workplace. Um, and I think that's a limitation that we are yet to be able to find a way through. Um, so I think I think fundamentally that's that's one of the limitations of of door knocking as the as the backbone of our kind of like strategy is that we can't build power in a kind of like, you know, power grows from the barrel of the gun kind of power. It's difficult to kind of see that happening given the given the structure of like unions in Australia at the moment. I mean, when I'm when I'm at my pessimistic, I feel like the actual capacity of any any institution or any kind of organizing strategy in Australia to build the sorts of very bolshy kind of power that will be needed to to win a really major confrontation um that we will need to win like soon to to really deal with climate change. I can't really see anyone engaging in that. Um, I think our movement has some capacity to to grow into that space. But fundamentally, I think if we are able to kind of take responsibility, and I think we are, take responsibility for building a kind of um, a, a common sense around a different kind of a different kind of set of political aspirations, a different kind of set of aspirations for what our society could and should be, we actually do need other institutions to step into the fold and be part of a be part of an alliance with us that actually can build the sort of power to to you know block ports and to actually engage in militant confrontations that we we may be able to do, but I don't know if we're necessarily the best institution to do it at this point. That does all lead on, as Eva suggested, to the, the the next question, which is really I am interested in the other forms of all the sort of community work that you do, some of which have been discussed, such as the COVID uh, aid packages and some of the flood things. I'm interested in, I guess, examples of it and some of the thoughts on potential um yeah, advantages and disadvantages of the different ones that you've that you've um, engaged in so far. I might. Um, I mean, the free the free food program was pretty pretty easily run. Like we had a really large mobile uh, volunteer force already mobilized. Um, I think the key challenge was just letting people know that we're actually doing it. Um, I might spend a little bit ta- more time talking about flood recovery, um, and I think the way. In, in previous floods in Brisbane, Brisbane City Council had deployed a fl- uh, like a flood flood army to clean up um, flood affected areas. And this time in these floods, 
February last year in 2022, um, Brisbane City Council was really slow off the mark on a number of things, like flood warnings being the first ones. I think it was Jono's flood warnings on Facebook that alerted a lot of people in the area to the flood coming, not actually Brisbane City Council. Um, and so I think I think what door knocking gave us, and it was not intentional in any way, but what it did give us was a way to mobilise a large number of people very quickly um, because our organisers are in constant contact with our volunteers, like calling on a weekly basis. Our volunteers know that they're going to hear from us um, really, really often, um, and we're able to turn out large numbers of people quite quickly. Um, and so I think maybe just to back to what Declan said before about, you know, needing to mobilise people for, um, you know, blocking ports and things like that. Perhaps we're not the best place people to do that, but right now we are perhaps some of the best place people to mobilise quickly. Like of unions aside, obviously, we can turn that around really quickly. Um, and so our flood recovery, what it looked like was going out to areas that we assumed would be flooding based on our interpretation of the creeks and rivers, um, sending some of our best door knockers out there. So people who, you know, have been trained in that style of life knocking conversation that I was talking about earlier where people are able to have really sensitive conversations um, and set boundaries really appropriately, but getting those volunteers to go out, find where people had um, been flood impacted and then offer them help and divert volunteers there and basically my role during that time was um, coordinating all of the volunteers on the ground like finding where people needed help and like shifting them around um, and at the start of the 10 days um, we didn't have enough people who needed help to send all of the hundreds of volunteers who desperately wanted to help to them and I think, um, like, it was just really a symptom of, like, not, I, I think what neoliberalism has done really well and what our level of social isolation has done really well is that when you individually have a problem, even if other people share the same problem, it's your issue to deal with and no one else's. And the thing that we came up against time and time again was people being like, oh, well, no, it's it's my house that is damaged and I am responsible for it and I'm not going to ask anyone for help to do it. And it wasn't until we were like, you know, quite insistent in going out and door knocking and saying, no, we're like we're here, we're here to help. We're going to help you. Um, we can we can do this work with you. That people will like begin to break down those walls a little bit and begin to trust that we would would do that work and show up again to do it. And I think yeah, Eva Eva rightly named it before that it was this type of trust building with the community that we've never been able to do before um and even to the point that now in the electoral offices people will call us and ask for help and will refer back to the floods of saying the greens were the only people who showed up like i'll never go to anyone else for help like i will always go to the greens now um and you know i think like we're going to see increasing crises climate field ones, but also cost of living ones, the one we're in right now and the one that's going to keep getting worse um, and being able to have the resources. You know, I think Declan said this earlier, 
of like being able to have the resources of electoral offices of the money that we get and the staffing that we get and using that to respond to these ongoing cycle of crises um, kind of will like just continue perpetuating the same electoral and community organising cycle. Um, And I think, yeah, with the flood cleanup, like it got to the point where we were getting calls from people in Rockley which is well outside of the Griffith electorate, like very much on the south of the south side. Um, and it was just kind of spoke to this, just like the like bureaucratic infrastructure not being able to respond appropriately on the ground um, to crises that people were having. And I think the other thing that stood out for me in the flood recovery was just how many volunteers were like, this is the most meaningful thing I've done and like the most tangible thing that I've been able to do Um, and it was a really, really great way, especially for our newer volunteers, synthesising like what our politics actually practically mean and like when you have an opportunity to practically apply your politics, this is what our movement can do and is capable of. Um, Yeah, it was a whirlwind 10 days but boy was it meaningful. (laughs) I was asking about other... um... I guess other exa- other examples of the flood things, like mentioning, like during the pandemic measures and the, some of the f- the free free breakfast stuff as well. Some of how that stuff um, has worked, and I guess um, some of you can speak also. I guess uh, the advantages and disadvantages of that as well. Um, yeah, well, I guess with the like there's kind of two types of community campaigning that we're doing. Like there's the the campaigning that's responding to like a material urgent need, uh, responding to a crisis. So like our free food programs, our free food pantry that we're running now, we're doing free breakfast in a local state school, though that's not really a uh, cost of living crisis. Yeah. Um, so responding to some type of like relatively urgent need, which I think is um, part of our movement building, part of living our politics and um, part of, you know, like Eva said before, showing, not telling what our politics are. Um, and I think, and then the second type of community campaigning is, um, you know, campaigns that we're running around flight noise or development or, um, you know, trying to win new parks, which is trying to politicise people um that might traditionally belong to a Labour or Liberal block of voters or maybe just a free-floating voter, um, but using a local issue that they care about and politicising it and showing them why government as it is and the establishment as it is isn't going to fix their problems for them. Yeah. Um, and so I think those those two types of community campaigning have yeah, two different purposes and two different sets of strengths and weaknesses and I guess maybe to speak to the second type of like our flight noise campaigns the the key limit is winning being able to win that campaign it is really really hard to win those types of campaigns Um, and so the big challenge coming up against those is like campaigning in a way which accepts that we might not win in the short term and it's a long-term vision and communicating that clearly to the community in a way that it still feels meaningful and meaningful for them to take part in it and to engage with it um, and to trust it. Um, and I think 
the advantage of both of those styles of community campaigns is it is it it's just an exercise in building trust um, and an exercise of showing what our politics is uh, rather than simply telling them. I think one of the conversations that sometimes um, happens in the space of community campaigns is um, that that is a little bit different to um, just electoral campaigns like, um, you know, door knocking, calling, letterboxing people. Um, with the community campaigns, it's this idea of, um, you know, we, uh, we can help um, provide some of the infrastructure and the... Um, you know the the messaging or whatever, or the um, um, sometimes the like impetus that a community campaign might need to actually get started, like get the ball rolling. Um, but then um, this idea of um, you know it's it's actually a shared project between you know the political party and the community and um, the um, <laughs> the people of that community um, are the ones really that have the power to win win that fight I think this is this is something that yeah it gets discussed um around community campaigns and I think it's an interesting um area I I think uh, an interesting conversation that um sort of is a little bit ongoing in um I guess the realm of community campaigns as a sort of um not opposed to but like in distinction to um just purely electoral campaigning um is um like the relationship between um, the campaign or the political party and the community members um, and who mm. actually has the power to win that campaign and actually that shared ownership of the campaign um, and, um, yeah, sort of who holds the ownership of it. And I think that's like an ongoing conversation that um, is really interesting. Um, and I'd be keen to hear, Mel, if you have any um, reflections on that. Yeah, I think, I think like this is something that I've been thinking about a lot in regards to like our flat noise campaign and I think in that older traditional sense of politics is you're you elect someone and then they go do the politics on behalf of you and if you ask them enough your block is loud enough they will go win they will go do the thing for you um, and your job is done in voting for them um, but our view of politics is like we're all doing politics and in order to win we need to build a movement yada yada we all know the go um, but doing that education of people who haven't traditionally been in a left movement or in a greens movement and communicating that, well, well, yes, Max is theoretically a power holder in this scenario, but we still need you to join us. Like we need to work together on this fight and the this isn't won by electing someone who agrees with you, especially when, you know, we, we don't have um, any type of, um, you know, political power to wield so that we need to wield different types of power. Um, and so, like, yeah, being able to com- communicate that in a way which doesn't make us seem powerless um, and also communicate in a way that empowers community to step up and take leadership in the space that they're in Um yeah, it's a funny space to navigate and it depends on what type of group of people you're interacting with. Um, but I think it's been really, it's been really incredible to watch, you know, what is ostensibly a very well-to-do area of Bulimba and people who, you know, and I'm making broad assumptions here and I can't speak to the individual experience of any of them, but, you know, a group of people who, you know, may not have come up 
against a lot of um, political challenge in their life to now be in a circumstance where they're like, well, like I'm quite well off, I've done all the right things and the political system isn't listening to me and I'm the type of person that the political system is supposed to listen to. How do I make change happen from here? And watching that journey for a lot of that part of the community has been a really good reminder that like yeah, you can shift anyone's politics and that anyone can be squashed by the political system if they choose to do it um, and that even people who, you know, might be sitting in a very different class bar- bracket can still be part of this collective movement going forward. Um, and when that when you can find an interest that aligns and find a common enemy with them, um, yeah, you can build a powerful way going forward. I'm also, just as a very last point on that, I'm also really interested in the idea of, um, like, aircraft noise and, like, um, the airline industry, like, as a Greens issue. Um, I recently Mm. reread The Ministry for the Future um, by Kim Stanley Robinson, and it kind of paints this, like, like, in some ways it's really, like, um, dystopian climate fiction, but in other ways, like, it talks about, um, a society that has like totally moved past, um, you know, jet flights and um, a resurgence of like um, airships and blimps. And that's like the future. And it's like slow, beautiful, slow travel. Like everyone's like slowed down a bit. And um, it's a beautiful description. And I've sort of, I've sort of latched onto that a little bit. And I think it's, it's like an interesting thing for our um, party and campaign to have landed on because obviously there's the material experience of the aircraft noise but then there's also like the interests of the airline industry and how that connects back to climate as well Mm. um i think it's just an interesting point and i i want to see um blimps come back into fashion i want the um yeah the steampunk um version of whatever we have now but better and um socialist this is actually useful because we're sort of running out of time i think so a lot of the things that i was going to ask has sort of been touched on in this um and it's a but it does lean into something else i want wanted to ask um which is i mean now you've got some two seats in the state parliament you've got three seats uh in federal parliament and they're all reasonably to understand it they're relatively inner city suburbs so there's a hell of a lot of of brisbane out there i'm interested in thoughts on the tensions between um this type of work uh, it's obviously won you the seats and no doubt the resources involved have helped you deepen this work what are the tensions between consolidating these areas that you've gotten uh, and deepening the work there and potentially breaking out into to new areas where you haven't done this type of thing before? Uh, something I've been saying for, for years, like since I first started getting involved, is, um, Christ, I can't wait to door knock in Logan or Ipswich or Inala. Like, I think you know, something I'll, I'll often say to new volunteers is like, look, what we're trying to offer people is the politics of wealth redistribution. And it is going to be pretty hard when you're talking to someone who's really wealthy and actually don't benefit from that. But definitionally, most people will. And doing it in in these kind of middle class suburbs that that our movement has emerged in for you know kind of contingent historical reasons is is actually kind of doing it on hard mode like i think it's going to be so much easier to talk to people about wealth redistribution when almost everyone is going to really obviously tangibly benefit from wealth redistribution so in in some ways i think it's a bit it 
it's going to be much easier. And um, we needed our movement to kind of build a kind of layer of um, enduring like wins that we can, that provide some sort of resources and legitimacy and that we can actually now go out to those areas. So I don't think there is too much of a tension. I think, I think there will be some over the next potential couple of electoral cycles, cycles with um, holding on to what we've already won um, and winning new ones in t- just in terms purely of how we distribute resources, as, you, as you're kind of saying. But I think fundamentally holding on is, is the responsibility of the office and the, and the, and the people who've, and, and, you know, for, for in Max's example, it's the responsibility of Max, it's the responsibility of Mel and it's the responsibility of Eva and the work that they do with these community campaigns and in the office over the time that they're there. Like, I think we will need to dedicate hopefully less resources to, to holding on the second time. But after that, I think we should have just built the, the degree of legitimacy. And, and if, if we haven't, when we fucked up, like we should have just built the degree of legitimacy and confidence in the Greens as, as the only institutions that's capable of expressing the the broad interests of the community um so that we don't need to keep dedicating significant amount of resources to holding on to these kind of constituencies and and if we do that that just means that we're our offices are failing um so if you know if, if we lose anywhere um that we've already won it's because the office hasn't done a good enough job um, <laughs> um you know and i and i i honestly don't foresee that happening um with any of the places that are close to where this politics has emerged. Um, I, I find it hard to, hard to imagine. Yeah, and I think, like, the the type of people that engage with our movement for the, like, for how we got involved with, like, changing politics, getting involved with Dornock and getting involved with campaigning is different to the type of person that get, gets involved with the movement because of the community campaigns that we run. Um, which then is also different to the type of people that we engage with who come to our office for help and we support them. We get them a win, we get them an outcome, or maybe we don't get them a win or an outcome, but they're grateful that we tried. And those are all three different, very different types of people. And so Declan's totally right. If we're doing our community campaigns and if we're doing our electoral work well, which I think we're doing a pretty good job, but we'll we'll find out at the next election, um, those type of big... the 2022 Griffith campaign we ran. We're not going to run that again in Griffith. Um, we'll run. We'll still run a field campaign, but it'll be a bit smaller, and it'll be drawing on different parts of the community that we've been able to build relationships with over three years. Um, because the other perk of being an office holder is you get access to the parts of civil society that still exist. You get access to all of the P- PNCs, to schools, to different things uh, and can build relationships in different ways. And I think that like there are the, yeah, Declan's right with the like the shift in the type of people that we're going to be campaigning with um, as we shift out. And when we start doing that, like it's not reliant on the people that live in the inner city to go out and do the work, win it, and then keep moving around. We transfer those skills. We um, build up new campaigns and so I, I think at the moment our only like our biggest barrier is our ability to organize um, and we'll keep coming up against that barrier because we'll continually be raising the stakes and raising the bars for what we want to do um, but yeah I don't think it's a like it'll be hard it's not going to be a walk in the park or anything but I think um, once you've won a seat you open up an avenue for a different type of campaigning um, and I mean, if like you look at Michael Berkman's re-election campaign, getting a like nine, 10, 12, I can't remember what, a monster swing for his re-election. 
no other like Labour or Liberal MPs don't get that type of swing from incumbency, but the Greens do. And that's because we treat our electoral officers as a very different vehicle than what other parties do. One of the um, points that Jane McAlevey makes in the context of union organising, so it's a little bit different, is that like if you're trying to organise a union to go on strike and actually win a confrontation with the boss in this or that place, you need everybody on board. Like you can't, you can't hope to get anywhere with like half the people in the union, half the people in sex strike. It has to be everyone. And I think electorally, what we need to do is understand that like for us to be really like where we need to be in terms of challenging power in Australian society, we, we need to be getting like primary votes that are just like unheard of big. Like we need to be targeting 70, 80% primary votes. And that's like, we're nowhere near there yet. But I think that that's, that's something that I really want to kind of emphasize is that if we're, if we are getting anywhere near the sort of complete buy-in at the level of the whole of society that we need to actually fundamentally change the whole structure of like the whole structure of life for, for people, it means it means a level of buy-in that no other political party has ever got close to. And I think that's something that we need to kind of keep like grasping for is is greater and greater kind of engagement. Mm. Um, in terms of the potential tension between consolidating um, seats we've won and reaching out to new areas, I think um, something that I've been reflecting along lately as we sort of head into a, um, a new cycle of elections here in Queensland is um, just trying to, um, I suppose, have a bit more of like, <laughs> um, like an abundance mindset about the people who will help us win. Um, I feel like that's, I don't know, a bit of a hippy dippy term. But what I mean is like, just always remembering that, you know, especially so, um, you know, well, all across the state um, and across the country, like there is absolutely no shortage of people out there who want to help us win a better future and a better society. Um, they, the, the people who will help us win are there, like they're in our communities. And the question just really is like, how do we raise their expectations of what's possible enough so that they get on board and help us win it, basically? And I think the South Brisbane Greens project has some of those answers. And like, that's sort of what we've been talking about. Um, but now it's just about how do we scale that up? And I think um, we're all sort of on the same page of this feeling that, you know, the potential for a, a mass political movement that, um, you know, can confront the, you know, political establishment, basically. Um, it, it is here, like it is here in Australia, but the scale that's needed is, you know, 10 times or 100 times, I don't exactly know, <laughs> greater than what the Griffith campaign did. But that doesn't mean it's not doable, like it is eminently doable um, if we're organised. Um, and so I think just trying to remember that um, the people are out there who will help us win. Um, they're in the inner city and they're in these outer areas. Um, and it's you know incumbent upon those campaigns um, to, to reach them and activate as many of them as they possibly can. Yeah, I think that's, look, that's a really good point. And we've, and I actually think, I mean, we've been going for a couple of hours and we've all got lives to live. I actually think that point was a very useful summing up of, <laughs> of the situation and the challenges we face. So I might actually, I have 10,000 more questions, but I'm going to leave it. I will leave it there. And of course, we will have a couple more of, of these still uh still to go so thank you all for taking the time out for this i found it fascinating a fascinating discussion um and 
really could um, do another whole whole round of this, and it probably wouldn't get close to all the all the things I'd like to see discussed. So yeah, um, thank you again for for your time, and yeah, I hope it was useful for everyone. No, thanks so much. It's really it's been really really useful. I think there's something really really valuable about trying to explain what we're doing to someone who's outside it um, to actually articulate clearly what we're doing. That I don't think we'd we'd honestly be able to do without without this sort of structure of things. So it's, it's much obliged and much appreciated from Aaron too. Yeah, thanks so much, Carlo. Yeah, thank you. This is, yeah, good moment to zoom out and do a thinking thing. <laughs> sure. <laughs> all right. See you all. Bye. See ya.